오늘도 역시 대충 수습이 안 된다. 난 이제 괴물이 돼버렸다. 오대수 씨, 오랜만에 복수가 다 이루어지고 나면 어떨까? 아마 숨어있던 고통이 다시 찾아. 
Park Chan has been on record as saying like he wanted to make a love story where the word love isn't said at all. And it's like um it's said at, at a point where it's almost too late. Um and uh yeah, like a lot of his films, it's much more of an intellectual exercise than an emotional one. Um but it's a good film and I think it's uh, you know, it's got Park's talent for smooth transitions and chronological play, and it's very, very funny. And I um, forget if uh, his uh, 2006 movie, I'm a Cyborg, but that's okay, if the characters ever confess their love to each other. It's been a while since I've seen that, and I obviously did not rewatch it for today's episode. I have not, I have not seen that film. It's, a, it's kind of a quirky love story between two patients of a mental institution uh, with a lot of. Uh, play on reality and hallucinations and all that. And I I don't remember if the characters ever say, I love you, but it's just, or ever anything, like explicitly, even though it is a love story. But anyway, please go on. Yeah, it's uh, like, like great performances, great visual style. Like um, Film Stage had this fantastic video breakdown of how uh, Park Chan used um, lots of like CG to augment the lighting and um, like the colors of the scenes uh and uh, yes i think it's one of his best directed films and i think it's going to be in my top five films of the year and uh yeah there's a fairly healthy crowd at the cinema where i saw it about um 20 people um not bad and that was a matinee screening because i booked like a half day off work just to go see it (laughs) And uh, yeah, apart from that, uh, I'm trying to finish the Tokyo Zodiac Murders, a murder mystery um, by uh, Soji Shimada. And uh, that's been my cultural consumption since the last time we spoke. All right. So for me, uh, it's, it's going to be a little bit shorter since I've been very busy. That's why we, I actually had to postpone recording. And the little time that, uh, that uh, was not taken by work was taken by me playing on the Steam Deck. Okay. Uh, so the, I've, I have played a, I think an unhealthy, I've, I, or rather I have been playing what I would consider to be an unhealthy amount of Persona 4. <laughs> so I got that game and it is very addicting. I like it's, it's uh, to its credit. It is a very addicting game. I think I checked uh, a couple of days ago, I checked, uh, the Steam Deck, I mean the Steam account playtime and I had logged in uh, over 60 hours into it. Uh, and I don't, I don't even know if I'm halfway through. I have no idea. You've got to spend time building social links. Yeah, have you played it? I've got the Japanese version on the PS Vita, but uh, I have not played it, no. Yeah, I. so I read, I was familiar with the series, and apparently it's like a big, a long series, kind of like a Final Fantasy, where it's like a lot of games that are sort of connected thematically, but not by story. Yeah, and uh, and it was sort of it's considered one of the greatest games of all may of all time, and I I'm not sure if I agree with that. Uh, like I said, the game is very addicting, but I think that's most of what it's going for. It I I kind of the story has been like I said I've logged into I've logged about sixty hours into it, and I'm still not sure where the story is going. Like it's it's really hasn't progressed. Or at least hardly progress. What's happened is I'm not sure if you're if you ever started the game or if you read about it, but it is sort of a murder mystery. Yeah, it's like a midnight TV channel that is it predicts who's going to get killed. Yeah, next, yeah. Like and there's this uh, uh, like uh, uh, alternate reality that you go through the TV, and that's really all that it is. There was someone who was killing people through that TV world. And that's what you do. You just kind of find out who's going to be killed next and you go and save them. But there has been no progress made 
as to who's behind it, what's the motivation. It's it's literally and it's gotten very repetitive because all yeah. you do is you hypothesize stuff and absolutely there's absolutely no no clues, no foreshadowing whatsoever about you know what it is the mystery and you know new people get uh, become targets of whoever this mysterious murderer is. Uh, and you go in and you save them and they don't remember anything. So it's kind of like it's been the same thing over and over. And yes, there's new characters and there's some character stuff there. There's some um, there's this whole thing about the shadows and, and it's very Freudian and all that. But in terms of actually telling a, a good story, it's it's been very disappointing so far. Oh, OK. And and the game, even the gameplay, I it sort of gets gets repetitive. Too. It's 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 a lot like Pokemon. Yeah, you can uh, the Persona series. You can catch uh, the enemies that you fight and um, set them against other well, enemies. Not, not the enemies. You catch. You get. You get these personas, which are not necessarily the same as the enemies, but they're sort of like similar, I guess. Okay. Yeah, I've got Persona Three on the PSP and Persona Four. I just haven't had the chance to play them. Yeah, like I said, it's very addicting, and I think I guess you can make the argument that. An addict in terms of video games, addicting means good, but I don't necessarily know that I agree with that because I, th- I would say the Pokemon games are very addicting, but they're also not great games. Uh, <laughs> yeah, or at least you know they they they're you know you play one or two of them and they're great, but then they just kind of more of the same, right? Yeah, and this one is pro like looks like it's going to be a hundred plus hour video game, and it's like so. It could have been 30 hours, basically. Sorry, I don't have time for that. <laughs> I am enjoying it. I am enjoying it. And uh, sadly, it's taking too much, like I said, an unhealthy amount of my free time. And that's, and that I kind of regret that. But, uh, but it is what it is. I, I, so I, I guess, I guess the Steam Deck was new for me. So I, I did have to explore it. And Persona 4 is one of those games that plays perfectly on the Steam Deck. Yeah. Um, I, another game that I got because I think it was on sale was the new Spider Man game. I don't know if you've heard of that. Uh, uh, yeah, I've, uh, was it Miles Morales or something like that? I'm not sure who that is. He's like one of the spy, the new Spider-Man, Spider-Man, through the multiverse. I don't know. I don't think this is connected to the multiverse, although maybe, I don't know, because I only played a little bit about it and it's a little bit of it. And it's, uh, it's also a pretty good game, but, um, it's not connected to the Marvel series. It's by Sony. Yeah. Yeah. I could be wrong. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I haven't gotten that far into it, but it's uh, the gameplay is actually fun. Uh, it's yeah. pretty fun, and it's a well done of a game of Spider Man. In terms of except video games, I have sort of slowly but surely I continue through the the Monster series. I I'm somewhere in the fifties now. I forget exactly where. Back in Germany? Uh, no, they have not gotten back to Germany. I am in the part where that one German detective. That uh, types with his f- in imaginary typewriter. Nunga. He's he's now in the Czech Republic. Yeah, he's has he discovered the mansion yet? I don't know. I don't think so. No, I don't think so. Okay, I, okay, <laughs> I will say no more. It's okay. Uh, so there's that surely, but slowly continuing through that, and then another one. I am I just uh, I am making my way through the second season of the HBO series Avenue Five, which I've uh, never I, heard of it. Oh, it's a, it stars uh, House, the guy who played House, I forget his name, Hugh Laurie. Hugh Laurie, yeah. And a bunch of other actors, he's not the only one, but it's, it's an age, oops, oh, my cat, my cat just jumped onto my desk and dropped the Steam Deck on the floor, so let me pick that up really quick. Okay, dust it off. 
It's okay. It, it's a pretty sturdy machine. Uh, Put but, it on the uh, cushion. <laughs> uh, uh, but yeah, so my cat that didn't hasn't. I've had her for over a year, and she. One of the one of the great things about her, she didn't care about climbing on top of things, and just for the last month, she's started climbing on top of things, on top of the stove, on top of tables, desks, etc. So we'll see how that goes. <laughs> well, you that you've put in too much time into that Steam Deck. She wants your attention. Yeah, but I mean that could be it. But going back to Avenue Five, it's a story about it's set in the near future. In a very interesting near future, <laughs> where the uh, uh, there's people are uh, where space tourism is a thing, okay. and one of the ships named I believe the ship is called Avenue Five. Either the ship or the company that does this is called Avenue Five. I forget. Uh, but uh, is uh, ha- there's a malfunction and they get stranded in the solar system, and they are um, a, they it's going to take a lot longer for them to 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 get back to earth so they're stranded there and they have to they have to kind of figure out how to survive and it's it's essentially this interesting group of characters yeah uh and um it is sort of a comedy a comedy drama but i think i'd say mostly a comedy it is by the same creator who did veep veep uh okay Armando Iannucci or something his name is and he did uh, yeah. the British equivalent which was in the thick of it I think or yes and, and lots he also of, did like, comedy shows yes sort of political comedy shows with like uh, sarcasm and satire he also did also uh, surrealist as well yeah a little bit uh, he directed The Death of Stalin which I think 2017 came out which was one of my favorite movies of that year yeah, it's a very funny movie. Yeah, very good, great, great and funny movie. But yeah, so I, I think he, I'm fairly certain he's involved and he's the creator of Avenue Five. And the first season actually came two or three years ago, so I wasn't sure if it was canceled or not. But I think it was delayed because of the pandemic. But the second season is just coming out, and it's all coming out on a weekly basis on HBO. So I've been kind of watching that as a every one episode a week or something. And it's 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 a fun show. It's a good show. Yeah. But I think I can't remember if I've done anything else, but I think that's it for my cultural consumption since last time we spoke. Okay. And uh, that said, we can jump into our news section. So, uh, Jason, would you give us what uh, news are regarding Asian cinema? So, uh, in terms of... uh... Was it the Golden Horse Film Awards? Uh, you updated the news articles of this. I believe it's the Golden Horse Film Festival, which is separate from the Golden Horse Film Awards. Okay, so yeah, Although, I, just... I mean, there's a link there, so we can uh, we can check it out to make sure if it's wrong. But that's what the the article that yeah. I read said. Screen Daily, um, Taiwan's Golden Horse Awards. And yeah, Taiwanese film Coco 043 won Best Film and Hong Kong crime drama Limbo picked up most prizes. So this year we saw a major return to form for Hong Kong cinema after like a few years where it seems like Hong Kong distributors haven't been putting their films into the festival due to pressure from mainland China. And um, the most successful Hong Kong film, as mentioned earlier, is Limbo, a serial killer thriller um, shot in black and white. And um, I've seen a number of people on Twitter talk highly about this film. I haven't watched it myself. Uh, Hong Kong drama The Sunny Side of the Street took three big prizes, including Best Actor for Anthony Wong, which is good to see. And that's about a taxi driver who um, takes in a Pakistani child refugee. It also won Best New Director and Original Screenplay. And uh, Sylvia Chang uh, won 
an award for her role in Hong Kong drama A Light Never Goes Out, in which she plays a widow determined to fulfill her late husband's wish of reviving an iconic neon sign. It is it is a bit strange that so many Hong Kong films participated in this Taiwanese award. That's why I wasn't sure if it was a festival or the actual awards, because it sounds like there would be more Taiwanese in there. Uh, yeah, we had like uh, mainland China film uh, win uh, an award. We've had... Uh, what else? Yeah. Seems like Hong Kong really dominated this year. Yeah. Anyway. Mm, yeah. Best documentary short film, Will You Look At Me, uh, by Huang Shuli. Uh, it's from mainland China. In terms of other news, uh, we've had... Uh, you've put down The Wandering Earth 2 to be released on the Chinese New Year. Is that a Netflix movie? I am not sure. That's a big sci-fi film, isn't it? Yes. It's the biggest, the biggest science fiction film of, uh, from mainland China or, or non-English language, something like that. Uh, yeah. I don't know. The first one was not produced by Netflix, but was distributed internationally by Netflix. I do not know about this one. Probably maybe the same deal. I mean, you know, after after it premieres in China, someone will pick it up for international distribution and uh, I'm sure it'll be released. I mean, I'll probably watch it even though uh, even though ooh, the first one was a disaster in my opinion. <laughs> Okay, I have no intention of watching the first one then. Um, in terms of other sort of media releases, in uh, home media release, uh, Eureka is going to uh, put out The Dead and The Deadly, uh, starring Sammo Hung, uh, November 21st. Uh, martial arts action, uh, supernatural action thriller, um, a comedy. And next year, February 20th, uh, 2023, we've got Hideo Gosho's um, Violent Streets. Uh, he's a director who's done all sorts of things such as social movies um, and uh, samurai movies like Sword of the Beast. And Violent Streets is highly talked up. Uh, and in terms of uh, things that are in production or in post-production, uh, we got a teaser trailer for Hirokazu Koreeda's next work, which is called Monster. It's in didn't, post-production. Uh, just to interject, didn't Hideo Gosha also direct Gates of Heaven? Gates of, Gates of Heaven? Gates of Hell? Gates of Hell? Uh, or no... Uh, never no, mind. I, I don't, don't think, think it was so. him. There's, uh, Tenosuke, something like that. Uh, no, uh, that was uh, that was. Uh, I, all I know is because that was the first Japanese film of color, so I I always remember that. But no, it is. It you're right. It is Kinosuke Kinugasa. Kinosuke Kinugasa. Relatively not a that well known of a director, but never mind. Please go on. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just the Hirokazu Koreeda has. Uh, released a teaser trailer for his next film, uh, which is called Monster. Details are scant at the moment. Uh, all we know is that it's in post-production after being shot in secret in recent months. Um, it's a Japanese film and it's due for release in 2023. And um, it's not scripted by himself, but by a guy named Yuji Sakamoto, who's credited uh, with uh, Crying Out Love at the Center of the Earth, which is a really good tearjerker of a movie. And uh, the teaser has two kids running up uh, like a mountain. Um, it has a, I don't know, it, I felt like it had a slight horror atmosphere, but I don't know. It could be a murder mystery. I'd be really impressed if it was a horror film, though. And uh, yeah, that wraps up uh, the news announcements. Okay, nice and short. That was good.
Uh, all right. So I think now that the news section is over, we can jump. We can jump straight into our main discussion of this episode, and that is the film Old Boy, directed by Park Chan Wook. So as always, Jason, why don't you give us a brief summary of the film? So um, Old Boy is a 2003 neo thriller or neo noir thriller, loosely based on a Japanese manga of the same name. It is the second part of Park unofficially named Vengeance Trilogy. It was preceded by Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance and followed by Lady Vengeance. Old Boy was the winner of the Grand Prix at the Cannes Film Festival in 2004 and became one of the key titles to help popularize Korean films internationally. So the story follows a salary man named Odai Su, who is kidnapped and imprisoned in a hotel room for 15 years by unknown captors. During that time, he is framed for his wife's murder and his daughter disappears. After being inexplicably released, he tries to figure out who locked him away with the help of a young woman who takes him in. So the cast uh, is led by uh, Chai Min-shik as Odai Su, and uh, his enemy is uh, played by Yu Ji Tai, and the captor's name is Li Wu Jin. And the woman who takes in Odai Su, her name is Mi Do, and she is played by Kang Hai Jung. So the film was directed by Park Chang Wook, and uh, it features cinematography from his regular cinematographer, Chung Chung Hoon who did Old Boy, Lady Vengeance, I'm a Cyborg, First Stoker, and The Handmaiden. Yeah, in terms of awards, it won Asia Pacific Film Festival 2004's Best Actor and Best Director. Bike Sang Art Awards Best New Actress, Best Actor, and Best Director. Busan Film Critics Association Best Film, Best Director, Best Cinematography, Best Actress. At uh, Cannes Film Festival, won the Grand Prix of the Jury and was nominated for the Palme d'Or, but lost out to Fahrenheit 9-11. At the Grand Bell Awards 2004, won Best Film Editing, Best Actor, Best Director, Best Lighting, Best Music. At the Hong Kong Film Awards 2005, it won Best Asian Film. And the Korean Association of Film Critics uh, named it Best Film, Best Director, Best Actor, Best New Actress, and Best Director. All right. Uh, thank you very much for that uh, summary, Jason. So why don't we start with, uh, with our discussion in the usual way where I ask you, what's your history with this film? Uh, what did you first see it? What did you think of it? And uh, what did you think of upon rewatching it for this episode? So I was in high school at the time and um, I was on like film forums like um, Kung Fu Cult Cinema. And um, I remember a lot of hype around um, Joint Security Area and um, Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance. And uh, people were talking up this film. So I think it was in 2004, I used an import. Uh, film import company called DVD Movie Club and I got the Korean DVD and I watched it and I was really astonished um, principally because the story of all of its twists and turns and that shocking reveal at the end uh, but then the next few times I watched it uh, including at the cinema when Tartan gave it a theatrical run I was um I was more taken with the sort of energetic theatricality of the cinematography and the editing and the slick direction. And uh, yeah, it became one of those sort of key titles that helped cement in my mind that like Korea is going to be like a real powerhouse um, Asian, uh, a powerhouse film um, production um, hub. Uh, since then, um, I bought the Tartan sort of releases of his works, but I haven't watched any of them. And uh, I only watched Old Boy recently in preparation for this podcast. The, the one thing that I was going to interject is um, that we usually are not great about, 
you know, spoilers and warning about spoilers. But this is one film uh, that we should warn the audience that if you have not seen it, just go and watch it before anybody spoils it. Because it is, uh, of course, I would argue that the film has uh, infinite rewatchability value, if that's a phrase. But it is, there's something special about watching it for the first time without knowing how it goes. So if you haven't, please go watch it before you listen to our or anyone's discussion about it. Okay. So regarding my experience, I think I first watched it uh, around 2006. It couldn't have been any earlier than that. And uh, it was sort of, it has a special place in my heart because it was the sort of like the first movie that I watched that kind of made me really love movies. Uh, in, in in a way that it sort of it made me kind of love the uh, art of movies rather than movies as entertainment. But I think because of that reason, it's kind of been the film that I often point out to as my favorite movie of all time because it's just it has that I have sort of like that personal history with it. I, it's it's funny if you the worst thing that you can ask a cinephile is what's your favorite movie because it's I mean it is an impossible movie to an impossible question to answer. Uh, for very, very valid reasons. Uh, so I've always been kind of proud, uh, but also a little bit ashamed that I actually do have an answer to that question. And that's why I was a little bit hesitant to, to cover it on the podcast, because it's how how can I be objective about the movie? But in the end, it doesn't really matter that much. Uh, but yeah, so it was, again, I think I think already that you can easily sort of understand, imply from that, that it was, you know, I was immediately taken aback by it. It was immediately... Uh, shocked and and amazed by sort of my my reaction the first time of the movie and i must have seen it since then from from that first time in 2006 till you know a couple of days ago was the most recent you rewatch no exaggeration close to a hundred times like i've seen this movie a, a lot a lot i almost have have every frame of it memorized uh, most okay. most lines of dialogues. Yes, I'll forget a thing or two. You know, if it's been a while, of course, because you know. Uh, but uh, but I generally generally it's I I it's it it lives in my head pretty comfortably, and I think I and again I think that says it all. That says all about uh, uh, what uh, how I feel about the movie and how it definitely has not. It's my appreciation of it has not diminished since that very first time. But I actually, uh, surprisingly, I only read the manga recently, like a couple of years ago. I don't know if you, Jason, have actually read or looked at the manga for, for Old Boy. No, I haven't um, read the manga. I haven't even bothered with the Spike Lee remake either. Okay, okay. Uh, I think I'd say the manga is worth it. It has some qualities uh, on its own. It's more philosophical and less philosophical at the same time or, or rather either other aspects of it are more philosophical and other aspects are a lot less philosophical there is a, a very strong gay aspect to it it's it's heavily hinted that the antagonist is a homosexual and that is speculated many times that that is the reason why he's seeking revenge like the main character whose name is goto uh g-o-t-o hmm. Uh, suspect that the reason why he the the antagonist I forget what the name of the antagonist is in in the manga uh, he 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 thinks that he might have accidentally sort of outed him 
and that's why he's taking revenge. Or and there's another theory that he throws around that he secretly attracted him. There's a lot of the the, the approach to homosexuality from the manga is weird. Uh, in the end, it turns out not to be that, and I'm not going to spoil it. Uh, the reason that the 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 antagonist in the manga actually provides for his revenge is uh, is a lot sillier, in my opinion. It's something that can only make sense in a manga. I think it has that. So sort of, it. So the Korean movie actually deviates in terms of like the inciting incident. Significantly. Like there, there's a lot of common elements, like in the imprisonment uh, and a lot of it. But there's uh, like in the key, the, the aspects that make the movie stand out as much as all the reasons why people are remember it as much are not nearly as, as uh, deviates. The, mo- the movie deviates significantly from the manga. Okay. And uh, and it's the manga is also not as dark or as twisted as the movie is. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so I mean, I still encourage people to read it because it's a fun read and it's a relatively short, you know, by manga standards, I think it's a relatively short manga. So uh, in terms of like uh, the Spike Lee uh, remake, how um, faithful is it to the manga? How uh, How similar is it to the Korean movie? It's a lot more similar to the Korean movie than it is the manga. I'm, uh, isn't there like the uh, addition of characters or something like that? Um, changing um, the not really. I don't remember. I only watched the Korea the Spike Lee movie once, twice. Sorry, I watched it twice, and I don't think so. It's a, it's there's they change details, but I think yeah. the key beats are are the same. The there is so the there was before before we talk about the movie. I guess we can talk about sort of like this the remakes and the adaptation all that so before the spike lee remake came out there was a script uh written by i forget who were but there was sort of a uh steven spielberg rumored remake of this i don't know if you've ever read that no yeah so before before the spike lee since i think as early as 2006 there were rumors that uh that spielberg would be would be direct and was attached to direct this and one possible actor to to star in it was Will Smith. Uh, <laughs> although okay. the Spielberg connection was stronger than the Will Smith connection, of course that fell apart and then the project stuck in limbo. Uh, and then Spike Lee uh, took it and the rest is history. But uh, but there was there was a script for the Spielberg version. I th- I think. Uh, that was written around 2005, and I, I've read the script, and that also is also pretty faithful to the original, to the 2003 movie. Yeah, uh, and I think Spike Lee version is loosely based on the 2005 script, changed significantly, but all of them are in spirit remakes of the movie more so than the source material, the manga. Yeah, the Spike Lee movie is a disaster, mostly because I don't think Spike Lee was the right director to do that. Um, there is, I think, a sort of a failure to understand in the Spike Lee version what is what it the already the 2003 version is really about, uh, and the Spike Lee version is just dark for darkness' sake. There is a maliciousness about it, in addition to a lot of other flaws. Mm. Um, what else? Uh, there's also an Indian remake, a Bollywood remake, which I've also seen, and that one is actually. A very uh, not very different there's a it still follows the 2003 movie relatively faithfully but it takes some deviates in some very very key ways and it's actually a fun movie to watch not a great movie but it is a fun movie yeah uh, i think it's called zinda or something <laughs> and uh the, the the one copy that i watch uh, you could actually text a number to obtain the soundtrack for the movie 
and I don't know if this is a uh, if this is a, a like a Bollywood thing, but like in the middle of the movie, it'd be, do you like this song? Text here to get the to get the ringtone for it. Oh, oh, it sounds like it could be uh, like the plot for a, a ring type of film. Mm. People get cursed listening to this uh, terrible soundtrack. <laughs> yeah, it was. I mean, I don't. Know, it was typical Bollywood soundtrack. I wouldn't say it was terrible. Yeah, I haven't seen it, so I can't say one way or the other. Yeah, but uh, so now we can. I guess we can go back into the the original 2003 because that's what the episode about and the one thing that i immediately attracted me uh to the original was it how how many sort of uh how many layers it sort of contains how many layers it can be deconstructed to and how many points of view that you can really approach and analyze this view there's like a religious element to it there's a class element there's sort of a metafictional element and there's you know there's references to a lot of other films that uh, Park Chan Wook is a, a huge fan of any, and even without that, just if you only look at the movie for what it is, for its plot, its characters, its acting, its cinematography, its editing, it's a fantastic movie to just, it's a very, very entertaining movie. Yeah. Yeah. Even without having a deep knowledge of noir films, you can appreciate, um, how it plays with the genre and, um, the, I, like the visual aspects of it are incredible. Absolutely. The cinematography and the editing, I would argue. The editing is, it should be taught in film schools, the editing of this movie. Well, like I said earlier, like no one can do scene transitions like Park Chan, like the way he can jump uh, through different chronological periods. It's just incredible. I cannot, cannot recall any flashback in any movie as masterful as the sort of like the key scene in Old Boy, where Park Chang Wook remembers what he witnessed as a younger self, as his younger yeah. self, where we first get, you know, like we start that whole scene, which lasts about 10 minutes or so, starts as a typical flashback. And you can tell it's a flashback because now the colors have suddenly turned to sepia. Yeah. Uh, but then it slowly transitions as he sort of exists in that space in his memory. And and goes through the corridors. I mean, it's a visualization of, of, of like the metaphor that is often through his memories. Yeah. yeah, it's a metaphor. The corridors of memory, or or some variations thereof, is a very common metaphor that is used for memory. And Parchan work literalizes that. Yeah, and he does that. He does that a lot in this movie. So to uh, the one sort of the one thing that attracted uh, that I always found attractive is sort of like the playfulness that he has with the form. We talked about editing, but we also talked about how he just takes a lot of very basic elements of storytelling and he just kind of presents them a screen and he plays with them and he just makes them very literal. Like the film starts with what is a literal cliffhanger. Yeah, he's uh, Odaisu is holding a guy who's uh, by his tie as the guy's hanging off the edge of a building. Yeah, so it's a literal and also a metaphorical cliffhanger because we we also... It represents how he got there in in a story in a in a narrative sense, and there's also the literal cliffhanger because he he's literally hanging from a cliff or a building to be more precise. Yeah, it's like the perfect way to just to enter a movie. You've immediately got the audience's attention. Uh, absolutely, yeah. And uh, there's the, and then that whole thing ties into the connection with uh, with Greek tragedy. The film, I mean, the film 
and the story, but particularly the structure, is structured very much how an ancient Greek tragedy was structured, like Oedipus the King or Medea, or all of those, where you have where they sort of adhere to very strict structure as as denoted by Aristotle's poetics, right? The elements of tragic, where you have the exposition, you have the rising action, then you have the denouement, then or the, like the climax, and then also you have the fall, right? And the film yeah. is structured precisely like that. But I think it goes in step further and it kind of literalizes them again, like throughout the first half of the film or maybe the first two thirds of the film. There's so many scenes. I don't know if you noticed this. So many scenes of Odasu going up things, going upstairs, going up hills, just just literally Chasing like, after the um, delivery guy on the bike. Yeah, the, it goes up that steep hill and the climax happens quite literally at the top of the tallest building in Seoul. Before he has his sort of catastrophic uh, ending and uh, yeah, he's he's sort of ascended to the realm of the gods and then boom, he's brought back low. Yeah, uh, there is the, the sort of, again, a lot of direct elements uh, with, with specific uh, ancient Greek tragedies like Odysseus sounds a bit like Odysseus. Uh, it also sounds a little bit like Oedipus. And uh, and of course, his story is very much uh, an Oedipal story, right? And it's very, very, very clearly mirrored with uh, what the events of Oedipus the King. Yeah, including like uh, mutilating himself. Yeah, so, uh, the, yeah, the incest part, the uh, you know, a, the incestuous without his knowledge, being incestuous without his knowledge, and then yeah. mutilating himself upon finding out. Uh, but that, instead uh, of instead of his eyes, it's his tongue. Yes, exactly. Well, because I forget what the significance of the eyes is in Oedipus the King, but his tongue is very apropos here because it is uh, foreshadowed previously that Odasu has a big tongue, meaning he talks too much or something like that. Yeah, that was his, that was his sin. He talked too much. But then, you know, um, Od- Amido, there's that great foreshadowing um, bit at the, just before the final climax of Amido's like, I, I really hope that the guy who's imprisoned you gets on his knees and begs for forgiveness. And it's a complete reversal of expectations at the end. Yeah, it's so funny how right before, the way it's revealed, it's amazing. There is Wujin, Wujin, uh, sort of has that laser point and then sings the soundtrack. And the soundtrack of this movie is just beautiful. But he points out and he goes through all these camera collections that he has and his camera buff, apparently. And then there's that box, that purple box, that violet box, actually, which is, again, a, a recurring motif in this film. Yeah, the color purple and, like, um, this kaleidoscopic effect, like, on the box and, like, the umbrella that Li Wujin has. And, yeah, in that scene, he's, like, he's fantastic because he's very childlike. Uh, there's childlike glee on his face as he's about to unleash, like, a final devastating salvo. Yeah, it's, I think, funny how cocky Odysseus is before that. But y- you can understand it, though, because it's kind of like in conventional hero terms, like he's he's like become an absolute killing machine and he's going to finish it off. He's like, this is the final fight, mano a mano. But didn't you sense, didn't you sense like, like almost also kind of feeling pity for, for him feeling pity for Wu Jin? Like I can, he can understand why Wujin is so mad at him because he can sort of understand his love for his sister, uh, and he's saying, you know, you made a mistake, and you you thought you were gonna, uh, you were gonna be a father, and so sort of, and he at, at, at one point he even thinks or assumes that 
it was not suicide, Wujin killed her and he blames Oda Su for being forced to do that or something like that. that. Yeah, that's all part of the misdirection of the film though, because like you don't understand what the true relationship between the characters is. Uh, Mido, for example, you're not sure where she comes Oh, you know, you know where her loyalties lie because she acts odd uh, throughout the film. She takes in Odaisu without you know, too much um, thought or worry, even though he's a complete stranger. And uh, like, then you find out like uh, how actions have been manipulated, and it's total misdirection up until that final reveal. Yeah, that if I had to, if I had to pick a moment uh, where of the movie that I found a little bit weak. Or that takes me out of the movie for a bit. Technique is that that you mentioned how sort of like that whole uh, initial interaction, not initial, but the interaction, the scene between Odasu and Mido in her house, and uh, you know him essentially attempting to rape her, right? Yeah. And then she's essentially immediately forgives him and uh, confesses as like a, a sudden attraction, and and of course later it all makes sense. Uh, yeah. But it's still I don't know if that scene. Uh, works from the in the movie as well as i think logically should work but it just in the moment no matter how many times i've seen this film i know exactly what happens it's still that scene that doesn't feel quite uh, to work quite as well a little too contrived you say yeah i'd say yeah i guess a little bit too contrived a little bit even 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 with the premise of hypnosis because you can just i mean you can justify anything if you say the characters were not uh, responsible for their own actions, but it's still narratively, it still feels like a very out of character moment. No, yeah. not very, a little out of character. I just like in the in the wider context of the trilogy, trilogy, you know, um, Mister uh, Sympathy for Mister Vengeance has very realistic feel to it. There are parts of it that feel like a Li Chang Dong movie, and so that one comes off as the most like brutal and vicious of the three. And but. Over the course of the trilogy, it gets more cartoonish. So I felt like, yeah, that was a weak element, but I was ready to forgive it and keep going with the story. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It doesn't, it, it goes, no, I don't think anybody uh, would, would complain that that ruins the movie. Uh, I would say, uh, since you brought that up, it's this movie compared to the, I mean, before Old Boy, Park Chan Wook had only made a joint security area and sympathy for Mr. Vengeance. And both of them, tend to be sort of like realistic, have a more realistic tone to them. And um, Joy Security Era is is somewhat melodramatic, but neither of them have sort of like this playfulness that Allboy has. Like a very funny aspect to it. Not just funny, but playful, both in terms of the content, but also the form, the things that we talked about. And I honestly, like, like even like something like, you know, the hammer, the scene with the hammer where he first... And the dot 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 dot. Uh, yeah, yeah, and then the ding at the end when it goes to his head. Uh, yeah. And do you know what that reminded me of? Was it uh, like a Hanna Barbera cartoon or something like that? Well, maybe, but no. It reminded me of a different movie that we've seen together for this podcast. Oh, uh, which one? Which one features hammers? Well, not not specifically hammer, but just that style, that sort of like comical, playful style. Then say number three. Number three. Okay. Yeah, because, yeah. That's an interesting fact on the Wikipedia page that um, was it. Park Chan originally wanted um, the uh, other lead actor from Number Three. Uh, what's his name? Uh, Han Suk Kyu. So the main character. Play, yeah, to play Lee Woo Jin. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's right. And uh, his main objection was that uh, the actor that does play end up playing Lee Woo Jin was too young. Yeah. 
uh, what actually I think works works better for for the metaphorical reasons as the they're the same age as Odasu, but Odasu like looks like twice his age. He's just hard living. <laughs> mm. Whereas the main antagonist is stuck in this perpetual childhood or yeah. um, teenage hell. Uh, but just going back to so like to concluding the point that I was making is I think the playfulness reminded me a lot of number thing, and I wonder if because uh, I think from old boy, not just uh, the trilogy, but the rest of his film, he does have that playfulness, and he's kind of abandoned it with his last few uh, pictures, like with uh, the handmaid or the handmaiden, that he doesn't have that. And I don't know about decision to live if if it's also as playful. But for a while, oh yeah, both... it is very playful. Okay, so that's good. Uh, might be a return to form for him, but you know, uh, old boy and uh, what's her uh, lady vengeance, lady and vengeance. I'm a cyborg and thirst. They all had that playful, and I'm wondering if if number three wasn't an inspiration for him because there's that kind of really uh, uh, like you know, in number three, he he uses a lot of like these cartoony uh, visual effects, like the the letters that appear in front of the uh, of on top of the character's head with the buzzer. Mm. So, like, I'm wondering if at least some inspiration was of that. But to switch gears to sort of Eugene, I do like the fact that he ended up being cast to that actor because I, I really like that he's so young and handsome as opposed to Odasu's rugged looks and essentially downtrodden and beaten persona. Yeah, if you uh, look at the film in terms of class analysis, like Li Wu Jin is the epitome of like um, riches, and uh, like his wealth has allowed him to sustain good looks. Absolutely, and he has literally like he should have been dead. Uh, I think I think there's maybe a hint there that the problems with his I, I've read interpretation where he's making up that whole heart thing just to mess with Odasu I, I don't necessarily buy that I do think he he legitimately had a heart problem and I think we're meant to interpret it as the death of his sister yeah shocked like him. the heartbreak was so big that it just caused him to have a heart attack or his heart to fail or anything like that yeah and have that sort of pacemaker inserted and then nice bit of misdirection for the end yeah well, I, I think he does again. Another another possible interpretation is: Did he, uh, if he was telling the truth about the pacemaker, was he telling the truth about the remote, uh, or was he just messing with Odasu there? And I think uh, even that, I'd say we are, I think, meant to interpret that there's that scene where he has that operation in his penthouse, and, and I think that's to remove the remote. Okay, so it's so he's on a. Does that mean he's on a ticking clock? Then at some point, his heart's going to give out at any point. Well, as long as the pacemaker works, I think it should be fine. There's plenty of people with pacemakers that live long lives, I think. Yeah. Uh, so I don't necessarily think. I think he just removes the ability to kill himself just so he can have that final moment. But then, of course, after he's taken his revenge, he, he's lost the will to live. Yeah, that, that's his whole point of like living. That yeah. Seeking revenge. But I think the class is... is I mean, the class uh, sort of treatment of this... Uh, film, which are very sort of like metaphorical and in a, like a very uh, deep level, or at least non-obvious level. And I think it also ties up uh, or is tied to the sort of like the Greek tragedy connection with this film, because uh, like a, like the, the a big theme in Greek tragedy is sort of like the fatelessness or the, the inevitability of fate and the, the, the role that gods play in sort of like the, the lives of mortals. And Wu Jin in this film is essentially like a god 
for one thing, he is omnipresent. He is omniscient because he's constantly, as far as Oda Suze and Mido's life is, he's constantly has eyes and ears of them. He, he is omnipotent because he controls their action in such a remarkable level as to make them fully loved that I think he does play the role, if this is a Greek tragedy, he does play the role of the god. Uh, that sort of punishes the mortals. But I think in the real world, I think it's his class and his wealth that essentially allows him to do that. Whereas Odasu, because of being work, working class, is completely power, powerless to the whims of this guy. Yeah, uh, Li Wujin's wealth allows him to sort of um, manipulate every aspect of uh, the lives of the characters. And uh, like... Odaisu, who is a salary man, you know, who is like one of the sort of army of workers who would have been um, like tossed out at the uh, during the Asian financial crisis, uh, who would have been sacrificed by the people at the top. He's a very uh, representative of workers. Yeah, and it's the the phrase that he says Odaisu means getting through one day at a time. I've always sort of like in 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 more. Western context, or at least American context, that could also be read as paycheck to paycheck. Yeah, like uh, that's what paycheck to paycheck is. You just ever not necessarily day at a time, but a month at a time, or a week at a time. Uh, and Li Wujin has orchestrated everything over the course of years, decades. Yeah, I mean, and it's also I think perhaps his wealth dictated his motivation because you could ask, would he be so hell bent on revenge had he not been wealthy? And there's also this other that, you know, incest has always been sort of like associated with aristocracy, in, at yeah. least in Western Europe. I don't know about Asia, but this is a very European inspired story, right? Again, the whole Greek sense. So you have to view it in that sense. But at least in Western aristocracy, incest has always been associated. Royal families. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of got the feeling that, uh, like, um, because, like, because Odaisu attends a, a sort of similar school, um, as uh, Li Wujin's um sister, that um they're not too f far apart in terms of class, but the shock of um losing his sister forces Li Wujin to actually work hard to and then to amass wealth in order to torment, capture, uh, capture, torment, and then punish Odaisu. I don't, I don't think that's that's entirely correct because it is mentioned several times in sort of like in in their interviews with other people, that they were a wealthy family. Yeah. And you can see that Wu Jin went to an American university immediately yeah. after high school. So I think Wu Jin was already wealthy. Now, perhaps he amassed more wealth as a, as a, as a result of his plan for revenge. But I don't think, I don't think he, it's safe to say that he wasn't already wealthy. As for Oda Su... That's again. That's I don't think that's exactly answered. Maybe he was wealthy, and that's why he's forced to move. His family lost the wealth somehow, so they're moving to Seoul for to seek work or something like that. Uh, maybe he was on a scholarship. I don't know why. He doesn't look particularly bright. So yeah, this is like the childhood stuffs taking or the teenage stuffs taking place in the nineteen eighties, right? Uh, maybe seventies. 1970s. Because I think Odasu is already in his 30s when he's kidnapped in 88. Mm. Uh, so, so maybe uh, like he's close to, he's in his 40s definitely when it comes out. Because he's double the age of, because uh, Mido is 18, I think. 
Yeah, so this is this is before like uh, any major economic booms then. Possibly, yeah, yeah, possibly. I mean, there's that montage as he's digging in his prison, that split screen where we see major events, including you know the uh, the I- A- IMF, I think. Yeah, it's like news headline. They have to bail out um, South Korea, and then it's like Princess Diana's uh, died, and the nine eleven is there as yeah. well. Which is a great montage to show, like, the passing of years. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely brilliant. And, uh, of course, I think the last thing that they show is the Korea uh, performing well in the 2002 World Cup, which they hosted. And, like, uh, hopes of unification as the North Korean leader, is it, visits South Korea? Yeah, yeah, something like that. that. I think that happens in 2001. Yeah. But that's, I mean, that's a great montage. I think the other, uh, going back to the editing, the other piece of brilliant editing is the uh, Wujin suicide. Ah, where you see like the inciting incident, so to speak. Well, like, that part uh, too. That part is brilliant because you get closure there about what happened with the sister. But then but the, the Wujin's w- hand, exactly, specifically, exactly. everything revolving around hands. Yeah, yeah. And again, again, there's another case where he sort of mixes the past and the present, where he kind of cuts between uh, the young Wujin actor and the current Wujin actor, and then he zooms on his hand without a gun, and then he shapes his hand. In the way that he would, as as though he would be holding a a, hand, a gun. Yeah, just like fantastic match cuts, just to yeah, take us abs- to different that's places. I mean, that's brilliant. I just again, I'm I'm gushing all over this movie, but I I think it's safe to say that is objectively brilliant. Yeah, it's just one of the ways in which you can use cinema to sort of traverse time and space and to really root us into the psychology of the character. Absolutely. And and I mean, Park Chan-wook is nothing if not a massive cinephile. Because, I mean, there's so many references to classic cinema, like all the noir stuff and all that. I mean, he's a huge fan of Hitchcock. Uh, he's also, I mean, he also has a degree of philosophers, so he cited several philosophers like Nietzsche uh, and I think Kierkegaard. And you can see their influences in this, in, this, in this film. You can see the existentialism influences in this film. But he's also yeah. a, a massive cinephile, and you can see Hitchcock all over his filmography, but especially here. You can also see a lot of De Palma. I don't know if you've seen the movie Obsession. Uh, no, I haven't. Uh, I haven't watched too many De Palma films. What's Obsession about? I, I did mention De Palma last uh, a couple of episodes ago when I talked about Carrie, right? And I said that yeah. I think the best De Palma is when he rips off Hitchcock. And Obsession is one of those that it's essentially sort of a, a ripoff of uh, Vertigo. And uh, the, I'm, I'm not using ripoff negatively here. I'm, I'm actually using it in a positive way in the way that artists steal, quote, well, however that goes, right? I don't know. Could it be an homage then? Yeah. Well, I don't know. It's, it's like, what's the, what's the common phrase that it's used that uh, amateurs copy, but artists steal? Yeah. And uh, I think that's what, um, that's what uh, the best of the Palma is when he imitates Hitchcock. And Obsession... It is essentially very similar to the plot of Old Boy. It's a, a healthy realist, I mean, a wealthy real estate developer, developer in uh, the South. It's the, the American South. I forget where exactly. Uh, his wife dies uh, in an accident and um, he disappears for some reason. He uh, he's, goes on, on a self-imposed exile. Uh, and then he meets, oh, no. So his wife and daughter die in a car accident. And of course, spoiler, we later found out that it's one of his uh, partners that betrays him to steal his money. Uh, and so uh, this guy is depressed and goes through his whole life uh, trying to, to recover from the of his wife and daughter. And uh, later on a trip to much 15, 20 years later on a trip to Italy, he meets a young woman who looks almost exactly like his wife. Okay. 
and he falls in love and they are about to marry, it is uh, it is uh, ambiguous whether or not they have sex. The, the movie does not show this. The, uh, the rumor is it that De Palma wanted to, but the studio forbade him. Uh, and of course, as it is, the, it is revealed that that woman is his daughter, and it was this this uh, his partner, the antagonist of the film, who planned this whole thing to make him fall in love with his daughter in order to steal the rest of his money or something like that. Oh, wow. <laughs> so it's quite similar. It's quite similar. It's it's very Hitchcockian in style, very similar to Vertigo, and it even has a, a beautiful soundtrack by Her, Hernard uh, Berman, who also... Berman. Bernard Herman, yeah, sorry. No, I mispronounced it as well. <laughs> uh, it's fine. Uh, who did, did the soundtrack for Vertigo and a lot of other Hitchcock movies. Yeah. Uh, uh, so there's that. There's also, I think, similarities to The Count of Monte Cristo. I don't know if you've uh, read that or seen any of its uh, various movie adaptations. I watched the anime adaptation um, last year. So it's like, uh, is it Edward Montez is betrayed by his best friend or like a co-worker and, um, during Bonaparte, France? <laughs> And uh, locked up in a prison, and uh, when he escapes, he gets rich, and uh, he puts the uh, friend's kids through the ringer, essentially. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, 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 I mean, again, almost identical to Old Boy, except there's not a big mastermind, not a big mastermind that uh, sort of like hang. That's that's unique to Old Boy, I think. Uh, an obsession, yeah. the Brian De Palma's obsession has a little bit of that, but but again, it's the same thing, and even it's even referenced, right? So the in the beginning, when uh, Mido is chatting on uh, on the web, on like uh, you know those old chat apps that used to be very popular, so like the, Lonely Prince, yeah, uh, which is was one of the titles of Count of the Count of Monte Cristo, the Lonely Prince. Uh, yeah. But it's also he asks him, "Have you read the Count of Monte Cristo or something like that?" Yeah. Uh, I, by the way, I looked up that uh, website, nade.com, that they use. Apparently, that's still a thing in South Korea. Uh, N-A-V-E, Nava? No, it's Nate. Uh, N-A-T-E. Nate. Oh, okay. It's a, like a, it. a messenger. So it's like a chat. Yeah. Chat, yeah, like a chat thing. It's not as nowhere near as popular as it used to be. So in terms of like uh, other literary references, uh, uh, have you found any? I'm sure there are. Again, you can probably point out to a lot of a lot of noir movies like Double Indemnity and uh, Out of Sha- Out of the Shadows. Uh, a lot of Hitchcock. I mean, there's if you look at the soundtrack, every song in the soundtrack is named after a movie, right? Yeah, uh, like The Big Sleep. The Big Sleep. Yeah, that's definitely that's definitely a reference. So uh, you can find out to a lot of individual noir movies. I don't know if I can, there's any big moments that I can point out that oh yeah that that particular cut or that particular. The camera angle is from that movie, except the the ones that I already mentioned were with brief, uh, the the large story strokes. Yeah, I, I, there's uh, one reference I did notice. Um, it's like Lee Woo Jin's sister's reading Sylvia Plath on oh, yeah, the bench yeah. when she meets Odaisu. Yeah, I mean that that was also the maybe perhaps the weakest because it's you know she kills herself and Sylvia Plath is sort of like famous for her suicide, right? Yeah. It's uh, I had to I had to read the Bell Jar in high school. Okay, <laughs> I, I, have I haven't read it. It's a song that I haven't read it. Very grim. Uh, it's depressing. Yeah, yeah. So it makes sense. Uh, the one thing. So going. I mean, if I had to kind of find a negative about the film, uh, that it doesn't bother me personally, but objectively, I think it is a negative. Is that I think the female characters uh, are not as well developed as they could have been. 
they're virtually they don't really have any agency. There's really only two. One major female character, which is Mido, and then uh, Wu Jin's sister. I forget what her name is. And they're both constantly victims. Yeah, they don't. Again, they're they're merely devices for the male characters to sort of like achieve their development. And I, that's, I mean, I, I'd say that's okay. Characters can be devices, but I think there's also a missed opportunity for the female characters to be more, more yeah. active and maybe get more out of them. Yeah. Uh, like even like that whole scene where uh, where Odasu spies from the window, uh, like it again. That that also is a scene that rubs me a bit the wrong way because of how they kind of uh, Ujin's sister sort of handles the whole idea. Again, it it looks like she's just kind of the way she gives into Ujin always felt a little bit weird to me. A little too easy. Yeah. Um, I wasn't sure. I think we're meant to interpret that as something that is not happening for the first time. Uh, it's also the movie leaves it unclear to whether the two actually have sex, had sex. Yeah, it's ambiguous. You kind of like they're experimenting and it just leaves it at that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Spike Lee's version, they, they, there's absolutely no ambiguity there. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah. It's actually, she's uh, the spoiler alert in the Spike Lee movie. The entire family have sex between each other, uh, like the the father and the, it's a family. It's it's in the south, I think. Yeah, uh, it's a whole orgy. A little on the nose with the yeah. uh, incest. They animal. don't show. They don't show the whole thing. They only show a very small part of it. But it is strongly impl- implied that that's what's happening. Yeah, I, actually, I don't think it's even implied. I think they say it outright. But anyway, so yeah, I guess uh, yeah. In terms of like. Um... When we uh, if, when we see uh, Odaisu go up to the tower, I was reminded of like Ben in um, Burning as well, and uh, yeah, that's like such great imagery where he's ascending. So, uh, do you remember the password of the penthouse? Uh, is it the uh, the date that the sister died? Is it like July no. something or other? The numbers that are involved because of the phrase of the Bible verse that is quoted. Okay. Which goes like like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the fowler, free yourself. And that's okay. Proverbs 6-4 or something. So he knows that the password involves 6 and a 4 or something like that. And the password ends up being 0604. Right. And that, that so I, I highly mention it because that used to be my PIN number in my cell phone back then where you kind of had a PIN number on a cell phone. I don't think anybody uses them anymore. Oh, really? Yeah, I, I still have those. Oh, you you still use a pin number on your phone? Yeah. Not, I mean, a pin from your SIM card, not your phone's password. Oh no, 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 no. I don't. Okay, yes. So, uh, your you used to be that to access your SIM, your SIM had a pin aside yeah. from any password that your phone had, right? Okay. So I don't think anybody. I think SIM cards still have the ability to have a pin in them if you set it. But nobody actually uses them. Of course, a phone password. Yeah, I, you should have a password in your phone. That's important. And not just one, two, three, four, five, six. Yeah, but back back in the day with old black and white phones. Um, Flip remember phones. The, one of the earliest phones that I had that your SIM card had a pin. You cannot turn yeah. on your phone if you don't know the pin of your SIM card. Okay. And that was my pin zero six zero four because it was I I knew I could remember that. Yeah. Well, that that oh, that. That religious reference is kind of like Odaisu mocking, uh, being mocked by Li Wujin. It's like Li Wujin's amping him up 
telling him to fight as hard as possible to find the answer, but we all know it's futile in the end. Yeah, and there's exactly so there's um there's a, again there's another we so we brought up we said class uh tra- Greek tragedy metafictional elements there's also the religious element which is the one I think I understand the least amount like there's that quote which features prominently a few times is the truth shall set truth free that's another quote that's mentioned and of course in the end Odysseu goes against the truth he does not he does not opt to know the truth because he chooses to erase his memory. Yeah, he uses hypnosis again. Yeah, and we never know if it actually worked. It's very ambiguous at the end because he has that manic smile. It, like the, the the camera holds on the grin a little bit too long, and you get the sense that like he's kind of aware of the truth, even if it's being solved. Well, it could also be. I, I, I think yes. So that's. I think that's one possible valid interpretation. I think it is meant to be ambiguous. I don't think there's an answer to that. I think. You're supposed to approach this, what what it means if it is this scenario and what it means if it is this other scenario. Park Chan-wook has stated that he wanted to leave it for the audience to decide. Yeah, because it, it could also interpret it being happy and cold at the same time, right? And that's why the smile well, looks it, like that. In a lot of fiction that uses hypnosis, there's always the idea that there's the original glimmer of a character or the truth or like something that's uh, like being... You can reprogram yourself as much as you like. Yeah. There's always something underlying it, everything. Yeah. What um, another? I think another possible explanation is in the hypnosis, the hypnotist separated separated the the monster from the good the good part of Odasu and killed the monster. Well, what if there was a mistake and it it was the monster who came through to the other side and it was the good Odasu that died and that's the monster smiling. That's that, yes, yeah, great imagery in that scene because you see like the real Odaisu locked in the mirror watching the monster walk away and with each step the lights dim. And then you've got the shot of the footprints in the snow afterwards. It's kind of like, well, uh, how, you know, how did what's happened since the hypnotist? And there is this, uh, this one line that I always found fascinating about she says, well, the monster, the monster will turn around and walk away. And uh, and at each step, he will age one year. And at the age of 70, he will die. Uh, but then yeah. she says, don't worry, it's going to be a peaceful death. Because I think that's sort of, we meant to take that as it's still very much part of, part of Odasu. The monster is part of him and he's losing. Wh- whoever it is that survives to the end, if it's the monster or the good Odasu, he is losing a part of himself and he's only half a man now. Yeah, you definitely get the sense that he... You know, he- He's lost something, but you're just not sure what. <laughs> yeah, I I know you're not a, as fun as big of a fan of Star Trek as I am, but in the original series of Star Trek, there's a very similar episode where there's a transporter accident and Captain Kirk ends up being split in two. One is his sort of like good side, and one is his evil side. Is known as Evil Kirk and Good Kirk. Okay, <laughs> and and that's the the conclusion of that episode is that. He needs both sides to survive because the evil side is the courage and the determination and the the spontaneity and the impulse, whereas the good side is the sort of like the empathy and the intelligence and the the I don't know whatever whatever they they separate all the elements that make a whole human. And in the end, he has to accept that both his good side and his bad side are need to coexist in order for him to be who he is. And I think there's something very similar going on i don't know if it's freudian or if it is some other part of psychology that they're exploring or some other part of philosophy but i think it, it there is that element of that that you know that monster that you had to use and it's referenced even before 
where Odasu is saying, now I am the monster. Once I've had my revenge, I'll go back to being Odasu. Uh, so that split is referenced. But I think there is a part of, of the film that is saying that both are Odasu, that Odasu, to be complete, he requires both. And if he'd gotten rid of the monster and forgot, he may be happy in the fact that he doesn't have that memory, but he's still not complete anymore. Yeah. Uh, David Cronenberg's Dead Ringers. Which I've not seen. Okay, I will say no more. I mean, what's what's the connection? Really startling image. Well, uh, two sides of a character may. Um, I don't want to say anything to spoil it, but like the final image will is quite haunting. Okay, all right, all right. There's a connection. I guess that's that's all we need. Uh, but yeah, so that's. I think there's so much. I think there's so much uh, like meat to this to this movie, and. Um, and like we said, it's also like a great movie, just to, to how fun it is. And the we talked about, we mentioned the soundtrack, but the soundtrack is fantastic. Yeah, you've got this waltz that um, goes throughout the film. And then when you've got that corridor fight, um, which is shot in a single take, it, you've got this mournful trumpet. And it's kind of like uh, Odaisu. Oh, kind of, <laughs> it mirrors his exhaustion, I guess. Yeah. Have you seen the making off videos for this movie? Yeah, there's uh, a free hour one on YouTube. Yeah, it's on YouTube. That's right. Yeah, and there's there was uh, it's like uh, in that scene where they showed that they didn't plan to do it in one take. He just kind of figured mm. it out as he was doing it that he yeah, and everybody just looking at Park Chan Wook and saying, "Are you serious?" or something like that. Yeah, uh, it shocked me at that uh, video how how casual he is. Like the film feels so precise. But it doesn't look precise at all while filming it. He's just kind of looking. They're just filming a shot. And then they're like, uh, he's looking back at the TV being played back. He said, yeah, it looks okay. Let's move on. Yeah. It just feels so casual about it. I guess that's that's experience. And well, he wasn't that experienced back then. But I guess that's talent. I have one thing I, I really liked about that film is where you have like uh, other like uh actors who are in different productions just appearing on set and looking at the rushes like um uh uh uh, uh song kang ho who's uh you know giving critiques about um choi min Shik's performance and uh lee uh byung hun uh, appearing out of nowhere it's kind of like all of these people who uh had previously worked with uh Park Chan uh, just like uh, on set, relaxed, and uh, yeah, it must have been a fantastic atmosphere. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming they're all filming nearby, so they stop by. I'm sure Choi Min Sik was doing the same thing. Yeah. He does. Choi Min Sik does have, uh, it's funny because he he plays, he trains in boxing in his room. And like, I think he has, he does have a boxing movie that he did a couple of years later called Crying Fist. Okay. Which is a decent boxing movie. Nothing to, to take hold to nothing amazing, but it is an, an an entertaining movie. Yeah. He goes through a great physical transformation in this because he's really overweight and round and the opening uh, the scene, oh, just before he's kidnapped, just before he's kidnapped. And then he gets leaner and leaner. Yeah, that's right. And he's, I mean, he's pretty fit uh, later. And I don't remember if, uh, if that was shot after or before. I think the first scenes, the first scenes that were shot were like uh, the investigation, looking into the the, uh, the the scene in the clock shop, essentially. Okay, because yeah, because it would be easier for him to start fit and then just eat a bunch of stuff and get 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 a little thicker later on. Yeah, 
uh what i was gonna say and also like the same thing with his hair like when he comes out of jail his uh hair is all like tangled and like spread out and all that and then in the it by the end it's very uh very slick and kind of combed to the side like parted and like looks very good basically yeah and then at the very end it's wild and gray just like the picture he's staring at in the hotel room. Yeah, and I, I so the even the Me Dawes hair, she has a couple of gray strands mm. uh, in it. So we don't know, they don't know how much time has passed. That's true, yeah. Although her face still looks very young. It's just her hair. So it could just be that the stress aged them so much rather than actual time has passed. Yeah, <laughs> I can relate to that. <laughs> Although I think it is clear that Mido hasn't really found out, because I think she still looks kind of clueless by the end. Uh, would you say uh, at the first season of Heroic Purgatory, it was all about um, like uh, great introductory movies to Asian cinema. Would you say this is one of them? I don't know. I have a hard time answering that, because I, in my personal life, I don't recommend this movie to just anyone. Uh, because it's so disturbing and so dark that I can only recommend it to people who I know can handle it. Or that I know that they can sort of like, yeah, basically handle it. That's the right word. Uh, so I don't know. I think if a person, it can be for the right people. I'll just say that. I know um, when it got its theatrical run in the UK, I took a friend to see it. I'd already seen it on DVD. And he, uh we both walked out of the cinema and um, I asked him what he thought and he was speechless. I, I, I do question whether I should have. We were like regular cinema goers together and I, I think it really blew his mind. So I'm kind of like, like you, I'm a bit cautious about who I recommend it to. Yeah. So I've shown this to, to some, some people have, I've had say to me, why did you show me this? Like, what's wrong with you? <laughs> Uh, it's kind of like the same. I think that I would treat, even though this shouldn't be in the same category, I kind of treat it like Clockwork Orange. You just can't yeah. show Clockwork Orange to anyone because it's a very, it requires a very uh, special kind of understanding to appreciate it. And I, I treat it the same, but I have people, I have had people who, uh, my roommate, my last roommate whom I sh uh, that I showed this movie to, he couldn't sleep that night. So we watched it, you know, around eight o'clock p.m., so it's a two-hour movie. We're done by 10. He couldn't sleep. We ended up playing cards till like four in the morning. That's how much shook up he was from the movie. <laughs> wow. Okay. Uh, it, it, I think it, this film can... And I, I was the same. I, not, not to the point that I, I couldn't sleep at night, but I was equal, significantly affected, shook up by this movie when I very first watched it. It was, you know, I, I just couldn't believe that something like this existed. It was maybe the most, I think... If people voted for the best twist in any movie ever, I, I can't see any other movie surpassing this. Again, I'm very biased. I, that's that's obvious. But I just can't see a movie, any other movie that has a better twist than this. Yeah, it's that first viewing has that maximum impact, which is why we've skirted around some of the major plot points. And we had that warning at the top of the podcast, which is like, you drop whatever you're doing, go watch this film. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, just to um, go back uh, to like news announcements that earlier this year, um, Neon, uh, the film label, announced that Old Boy will be back in cinemas, restored and remastered. It, I, that would be good because I, I don't own it, but apparently the Blu-ray that's available for this movie, uh, at least in North America, it's not very well transferred. Like it has a, the quality is not great. From what uh, from what I've read, so that maybe a, a better remaster would be beneficial. 
I don't know if you have any more info on that, but no, it's uh, that's all I've got uh, got on it so far. Just that twenty twenty three, we're looking at old boys possibly being in cinemas again. Okay, that's interesting. Do Do you think it deserved the awards that it got and the recognition that it's gotten? Yeah, because there's so much depth to it in terms of visual aspects, the audio aspects, and in terms of story as well. And like that, it's a spectacle, which is what you want to see in cinema. It's a great story with a lot of depth. And um, I think it helped solidify careers, like what a major uh, um, parts of the cinema universe. And uh, yeah, it lost to lost uh, the Palm Door to Fahrenheit 9/11, which is like purely political. And any normal year, old boy would have took it. Yeah, and I think uh, uh, the story, and this is somewhat ap- apocryphal, so take this with a grain of salt. But Tarantino was the the uh, jury president that year, and he was crazy. He was very hell bent on giving old boy the Palm Door, but pretty much the entire uh, jury sort of. Talked him out of it, and they said we have to give this to Fahrenheit 9/11 for political reasons, and yeah. they had to sort of like uh, make do with second second place for Old Boy. Tarantino had to make do with second place for Old Boy, which I don't know how I feel about. I don't know how. I mean, you. I'm not sure how you feel about it, but for me, it's I can I I enjoyed Fahrenheit 9/11, and I think Michael Moore has sort of cemented himself as the as a documentarian, as one of the greatest documentarians of the 21st century. At the same time, yeah. if I was there, I would give it to old boy without even a second thought. Yeah, like uh, context matters, I suppose. And like this, like days leading up to like the Iraq war, that's just a massive thing, wasn't it? And, yeah, uh, and uh, Michael Moore was a, spoke against the Iraq war before a lot of people did. He was yeah. booed at the Oscars in the two, 2003 for saying that by actors by hollywood which is a shocking thing to to actually happen so he was definitely ahead of his time uh, yeah. in many things still i don't know because i you know i i am maybe somewhat cynical and movies like in terms of change movies don't really change anything you're not going to change i mean in except very rare occasions you're not going to really change People's opinions, for the most part, and I think fair uh, at the same time, Fair Night Nine Eleven is not going to get seen by fewer people if it doesn't win the Palm Door. So it's useless for it to win that award, I guess. Would you? Would you? Uh, oh, we're going off on a tangent now, but would you say um, Fair Night Nine Eleven um, is anywhere near as good as The Sorrow and the Pity? Is that the Holocaust movie? Yeah. Which I have not seen. Okay, very uh, devastating account of the Holocaust and like I know about it. It's I I, I doubt I doubt it because Fahrenheit nine eleven is I mean like all Michael Moore documentaries it's a comedy. Yeah, it's funny. It's actually that's why I think that's why he's so successful because all his documentaries are very very funny to watch, yeah. very entertaining. Uh, so I I seriously doubt it's anything like it. In any case. <laughs> That tangent aside, I think Old Boy got its due because it's been remade. It's it might still be remade. Uh, it's talked about. I I wish more people knew it. I I, I it's genre fans and cineasts hold it in high regard. Yeah, and I think a lot of directors, a lot of filmmakers hold it in high regard. Yeah, and it just it's 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 a I think borderline criminal to me that Spike Lee. 
actually got to got the remake uh and insofar as the remake was be- was doomed to fail maybe it was maybe it wasn't i don't know him getting it was just was just i think terrible and and i think i read the story why he got it i heard an interview from one of the producers and the only reason he would the studio had the rights had bought the rights and he was trying to prove very hard that he could be a director for hire because most of his project had been sort of independent or sort of like individual projects that he was kind of responsible to from the start. And he wanted to prove to the studios that he could be a director for hire. So they just gave him this and he just did it. And I just wish that hadn't happened. Uh, is there a director working in Hollywood who could have handled the material better? Uh, so uh, this is I I've been asked this question before and it, the answer is somewhat controversial but I do think that it could uh, there was one that could have not in Hollywood but maybe Polanski. Okay. Uh, yeah. What's his first name? Uh, Roman. Roman Polanski. Repulsion. Knife in the water. I think he could have done it. And I'm not saying he's the only one, but uh, his style would be suited. Who else? Who else? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, Polanski is maybe an easy answer. At least Polanski in his prime. I don't know if Polanski now could have done it. I don't know. How about Oliver Stone? Oliver Stone. I I don't think so. No. (laughs) I don't think he could have done it. Yeah, I don't know. I don't. I mean, I'm sure there are other maybe younger directors who sort of like don't necessarily jump into mind that could have done a good job. All right. Any anything else that we can uh, sort of talk about? How do you think the? Hmm, what about the trilogy as a whole? In terms of like uh, the films are all based on the idea of vengeance. Do any of the films, uh, uh, like all the films, seem to suggest that vengeance is bad? That it'll ultimately destroy everybody involved. It is destructive. Yes, and I think I think that's very clear on where Park Chan Wook sort of stands on that. Although, like, the third film is kind of ambiguous, Lady Vengeance, because uh, at least you get some monetary compensation at the end. Yeah, the, th- the, th- the third film is also the most, I think, conventional. It's like the Thunderdome of the trilogy. Hmm. It's very, very cartoonish. Yeah, and also very, like, uh, conventionally structured, the most conventionally structured of the three. Uh, but I think, I think even that film, like, she's kind of left hollow at the end. Yeah, the narrator's like, she can never shake that feeling of guilt sort yeah. of thing. And also, I found the third one I'm not a big fan of because uh, I, I like the third one in terms of cinematography and, like, I think the main character, the actor, she she's pretty good. And I like some of the, again, like you said, the ability of Par Chang-woo to sort of, like, move, ba- move back and forth in time in his editing structure. Yeah. Uh, but the, the overall story felt, like, weaker to me. And I, I Choi Min-sik as the villain, I think Choi Min-sik can play villains very well. But he just felt like too, uh, car- again, cartoony, too, like, musta- mustache-twirling villain in that movie. Uh, one thing that the two films do do is to have, like, color slowly leach out of them. So they end up kind of monochrom- well, near monochromatic. Old Boy starts off really colorful, lots of purples, and then you've got that green just to throw you off, and then sort of like that green tends to dominate. Yeah, sort the of. End. Sort of. I think it's a lot more pertinent in Lady Vengeance. Yeah, they're very much more prominent in Lady Vengeance. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Especially because like that character starts off wearing a blue coat and ends up wearing black leather coat. Great, uh, like how he's uh, Park Chan-wook's in control of all these visual elements. Like he's 
Yeah, I mean, Park Chan-wook uses CG, some CG in Old Boy, but uh, it's not great uh, in my opinion. But it's it's so minimal that it doesn't really affect anyone. Like the the one the one that everybody kind of points out as a ba- as really bad is the hand with the ant. Okay, he, when he's in prison, when he has he turns the ant crawls out of his veins, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's that's such a terrible like use of CG, but it's like a, a second or two, so it's not a big deal. Yeah, it's just meant to be a scary scene. Yeah, and the the one part where I think they use CG very well is the knife. Like the knife is CG, obviously, and uh, it's obviously like the scene is such that way that it it like looks very realistic and believable. Okay, cool. All right, so I think that's it for our discussion of Old Boy, directed by Park Chan Wook. I think we both agree that it's a fantastic movie and it deserves all the recognition that it's gotten. Just be careful who you show it to. <laughs> Absolutely, I would agree with that. Uh, so for next episode, we will go. We're going to Hong Kong, where we'll talk about uh, Wong Kar Wai's two two thousand film, In the Mood for Love. Until then, we hope you have enjoyed our discussion. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, suggestions, please let us know at heroic-purgatory.blogspot.com, or you can reach us on Twitter at heroicpurgatory all in one word. Uh, otherwise, we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.